Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a podcast about the humanities and interdisciplinarity, produced by the Cohen Center for the Humanities at James Madison University. Hello, and welcome to today's Conversations at the Cohen Center. My name is Michael Klein, and today I'm joined by Ginger Clark, who is an author of children's nonfiction works and is also a freelance editor. Thank you for joining us, Ginger. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on the program today. Well, it's really our pleasure. Uh, so you are a graduate of JMU. I am. Um, what did you study when you were here? I was a theater major with an English minor. Um, I had really wanted to be an actress my whole life, probably since I began talking and walking. I was always a very dramatic kid and was in all of my high school productions of plays and musicals and such. So I was really interested in JMU's experimental theater program. Um, and that is what I ended up focusing most on. Although eventually I ended up behind the scenes too. I did some uh, stage managing and directing and set and costume and makeup design while I was there too. And actually decided acting was not really the path for me by the end of, uh, really by the end of junior year. But it turns out that all of those skills in theater were super useful because now about half of my job is presenting in elementary schools. <laughs> so I needed to be very flexible. My improvisation skills coming in really handy all the time. Um, it's pretty incredible sometimes the things that will happen while you're in schools, which you can probably imagine these days. Um, I think yeah. Yeah, I've reacted to everything from, I just tried to think of the big ones, power outages, sudden snow, lockdown drills, kids throwing up, there's been a frog in the library. <laughs> so you just have to, you know, go with things and see what happens. But I also think a lot of authors um, don't realize, children's authors, that presenting to schools is a, a pretty big part of our income. It's how a lot of us make a living. Um, and I didn't know that that was an option when I started. And so having that background in theater has been very helpful. And I, I have found that those who are also successful at that part of this gig have that in their wheelhouse too. So there's very much a performative aspect to, yeah. to what you do, and you you draw upon your theater experience Definitely. in doing that. Yeah, but I will so, say, too, that the, the English part of that, I was just a little bit shy of an English major as well. And I got to be there at a wonderful time when Ralph Cohen was there, who ended up um, founding Shenandoah Shakespeare Express that later became the Blackfriars Theater. And so I got to take a lot of cool Shakespeare classes with him about analysis and performance. And, and then I also, you know, just wrote a ton, which is great practice. I wrote probably a zillion theater analysis papers, right. <laughs> In those classes. So I got really good at practicing writing and revising and taking feedback from professors who all seem to be very um, good at providing that guidance as writers, since they, many of them were published themselves. Right. Um, and then the last piece of that was that I was in the Honor Scholar program while I was there, and I did manage to complete the honors thesis, which probably almost killed me senior year. <laughs> but I'm very grateful that I did because it was it was probably the the most skill based learning I did um, about 
how you actually have to revise and work with an advisor, my theater um, professor, Tom Arthur, who's now retired, was my advisor then, and Pam Johnson as well. And so they really took me through that process. And that was my first published work, right, which um, now resides in the Hillcrest House. (laughs) (laughs) So the the English and the the, uh, theater really complement one another. I think so. And that's pretty common, right? A lot of people take overlapping classes in both English and theater, and it just happened to work out that way. So you said theater wasn't for you, though you still are on stage, so to speak. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then you you uh, became an editor of children's books. Is that is that correct? I did. After several jobs um, in administration and marketing and different things like that, out of, right out of college, jobs that had some writing skills in them. Um, I got hired as an editor for a children's publisher that was in um, St. Pete, Florida, where I was living at the time, Pages Publishing. And it was kind of amazing because I had been working in marketing for a healthcare consulting company that was super dysfunctional, like a family-owned business, and I was miserable. And one day I called a former colleague who I knew had gone to this children's publisher and asked her if, if I thought there would ever be an opportunity, a chance for me to work there. And she said, you're not going to believe this, but I got approval to hire an associate editor today. Can you start on Monday? <laughs> and I did. So um, I was working there for a couple of years. I worked on everything from board books to young adult novels it was a very small team and I learned so much, you know, about publishing. It was wonderful. Um, and then to segue into, you know, from being an editor to an author, I actually lost that job while I was on vacation at the Grand Canyon. They sold the company to Scholastic. So <laughs> I came home and I was unemployed and then um I was able to start up um, my own business because I took all of my office equipment and a pretty sizable library with me. They didn't actually want any part of that company other than their customer base. So I got like my my cool early Mac that I got to take with me and (laughs) all these great things. So I set up, um, I incorporated as a business, I think within the next week, and I haven't look back in 24 years, I've been self-employed. So at first I was doing a lot of freelance copy editing, which I still do some of for all kinds of different publishers, everything from medical books to travel books to um, nonprofits and all of it. And at the same time, I was working on a manuscript that I had begun while I was working for pages. And if they had published that book, I would have never gotten um, credit or any money for it. If you write as a work for hire, as an employee, you know, you can't, you can't actually get royalties and and publishing credits. So because of that, because the timing of that, I had this manuscript that I had started working on um, and I had done a lot of market research. Pages was not just a publisher, but a book fair company. So I had gone to a lot of book fairs over those couple of years, and I got to watch 
kids interact with books, which was fascinating to see what they were drawn to in terms of covers and topics and what they most wanted to read for themselves. So I realized I wanted to make that kind of book that kids wanted, not that their parents wanted, not that their teachers wanted them to read. <laughs> I wanted to read, write books for kids. So I did a lot of research um, about who was making that kind of book. And at the time, we're talking about 20 you know, plus years ago now, Penguin Books was at the forefront of what we call beginning readers, leveled readers, which are books that are very high interest level and low reading level to help kids who are just beginning to develop their reading skills. So I um, revised this book that I had started writing and it became a work called Baby Alligator. And they actually called me, I'm really good with timing. They called me the day after Christmas, 1998. And nobody ever calls in publishing anymore, right? <laughs> but they actually called me from New York and said, yep, we are going to publish this book. You are going to be an author now. And although along the way I have published with a few other companies, I'm still publishing with Penguin um, 22 years later. So, That's a great, great story. Yeah. It must be a wonderful feeling too, to see your, your work in print. It is. And it's so exciting because, because these are not standalone titles. They're part of this larger series of all these beginning readers, they're all still in print, which is truly almost unheard of, especially for nonfiction, um, unless you become a classic, right? Unless you're a big name and, and becomes a classic work of art and children's literature. So I've had the joy of seeing these books change their cover design and their um, sometimes even the interior layout and the branding and the publisher has been bought multiple times and they're still out there. So it's wonderful. And I've changed my approach a lot over the years, but still within that structure of high interest level science with low reading level. So it just seems to work. It's a good niche for me. How do you select the topics uh, that you write about in your books? What inspires you? What uh, grabs your attention? Yeah, that's a great question. And the kids always want to know this too. When um, I'm talking to kids, they say, how do you know what to write about, right? How do you know all this stuff and how do you pick? Um, and uh, honestly, it just comes from all over the place. Sometimes it's like baby alligator, which happened because I was living in Florida and there were alligators in the lake in my backyard. <laughs> and I was just naturally very curious about that. And I wanted to tell this interesting animal story. And at the time there was nothing really like that and no internet, which really kind of makes the kid's head explode when I tell them that today. <laughs> um, they don't know how you learn things without the internet. So I watch a lot of television, a lot of nature documentaries, Animal Planet, BBC Nature, National Geographic, all that kind of stuff. And I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, for example, the, some of the, your listeners may have read or maybe you have um, a book called The Soul of an Octopus. And then there was a movie on Netflix called My Octopus Teacher. And both just stunning, gorgeous works. And together, of course, I wanted to learn more about octopuses. So that title will be coming out in a couple of years. I'm working on that now. Um, 
And I go with my family to a lot of animal related places. When we travel, we go to zoos and aquariums and nature centers. And sometimes I get to do behind the scenes things when I tell them I'm working on a book, but, um, but my favorite way that I get ideas is from students, from readers. Again, I basically get to do market research because I'm in schools all the time and I have access to these thousands of kids. So I should say I have not been in schools, right, for the last two years, but I just started this week going back in person and and will be. Yeah, it was. Oh, it was so exciting. I had to keep myself from crying in front of them. Um, <laughs> I will be in schools a lot over the next few months. And that's, you know, that's more typically how it has always been for me. So I use the kids and say, you know, what are you curious about? What have you not read a book about that you want to know more about? What animals do you love? And a lot of them I will have already covered already. But um, once there was a group of third graders, I believe, at a school here in Richmond that told me about an animal I had never heard of before. It's called the immortal jellyfish. And as far as we know, it's the only creature capable of regenerating in a way that prevents it from dying from old age. So that was very exciting, right? I wanted to know more about that. Um, and researching that led to me writing an entire book about all different kinds of jellyfish, which turned out to be some of the most fascinating and actually really important um, ecosystem connectors that I've ever really studied. So of course I gave those kids a shout out in the, the book. <laughs> that was fun. So for two, over two decades now, you've been a successful author. You've run your own business. Uh, what advice do you have for others who want to be authors, who want to go out and, and write, whether fiction, nonfiction, uh, and be their own bosses? Yeah, so I get a lot of requests about, you know, how can you tell me how to get published in children's books and tell me what to do and all of this. And the very first thing I really want people to do is do some fun homework, go hang out in a bookstore, because if you don't know what's out there and what's current and the, the current approaches to children's literature. Um, so I'll speak to that first and then we can talk about writing in general, but um, it's, you know, this industry has changed a lot over the last decades, but even the last few years. So I think it's really important and fun to go immerse yourself in books and see who's publishing what, what the their different each house, even within the large book conglomerate publishers, have different styles and different approaches, right? So I think that's the really fun part of it. First, do your homework, know what is out there. And then doing the research, um, there's a book called The Children's Market Guide that I always tell aspiring children's authors to write, to buy and read, because it's like the Bible of it every year has updated information on editors and agents and articles by authors and everything you might need to know to get started about how to write a query letter and how to submit. There's a lot of like, do's and don'ts in this business, things that can quickly get you rejected that you could have fixed if you knew about ahead of time, right? Um, and then the SCBWI, you may or may not have heard of before, it's 
a mouthful. It's the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and they are the go-to professional organization for all of us. Um, I've been involved with them the whole time I've been published, and I know that for a lot of people, it's their way in to writing groups, to networking with agents and editors. Um, and then for a lot of us who are already published, it's those are my colleagues, right? That's how I get together and talk shop with other people who do this odd thing, <laughs> this strange job I have. Um, and that can be very inspiring. You can go to conferences that are local and regional and national and international and learn about the journeys of different published authors. And then the other thing I really encourage um, aspiring authors to do that is going to sound like a plug, but that's get an editor. <laughs> so even though you would have an editor, you know, after acceptance of a manuscript, again, there's so many ways editors, um, I will say, look at hundreds, if not thousands of manuscripts a week, and they're looking for ways to pass on it. Although they want to find new, exciting things to publish, they also have to get through those piles, right? I've been in that position. <laughs> so um, it's important to, you know, find someone who can polish your manuscript. I, I have editors, right? I mean, all authors have to be edited. So if you work on that before you present it, you're much more likely to get noticed. Um, I provide a service that's manuscript critique and market feedback and copy editing, you know, for um, people who are, you know, trying to figure out if their manuscript is viable. Um, and, and I think it's just really a little tricky right now because there's so little barrier to entry with self-publishing and digital publishing that a lot of people think they can just put something out there and you can, but you then have to do everything and you're paying, you're paying to be published rather than getting paid. Right. So um, you also, I think a lot of people don't realize then have no real marketing help behind you. You may sell your book to your friends and family and your social media network, but you have no way to go beyond that. So there's a difference between people who want to be authors and, and really pursue traditional publishing and people who just want, you know, one story published and there's a market for that too, but it's a different thing. Um, but really the advice I have for all writers is just to have a lot of patience and persistence and flexibility. It's, it's sometimes a very slow business. It's surprising how behind the times publishing seems even though they reflect a lot of current trends, um, it moves very slowly and there's a lot of joy in being published, but there's also similar to being an actor, a lot of rejection and disappointment. And you have to, you have to deal with that. <laughs> you know, you have to just prepare for that and know that it's not personal. Um, and then also like recognizing that you need to be a team player Writing is a very insular and sometimes lonely thing, but you are going to work with a huge team once you become published. And those people all have ownership of the book too. It's not just your book anymore. And so I have found that being professional and being really easy to work with has helped me 
keep those relationships over decades and keep those relationships when people move on to other publishers, which they often invariably do. Um, so just being, you know, really flexible and, and I've, you know, I've heard of lots of stories of people who didn't continue to get published because they insisted on something being their way or, you know, there's a, a time to draw your lines, but being willing to um, cooperate and understand that everybody has the best interest of the book at hand, right? Because they all want it to succeed. Well, thank you for uh, sharing that information. Yeah. Um, so you're coming back to JMU next month. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how that came about and what you're uh, planning on talking about while you're here? Sure. So I will be in Rockingham and Bath and Augusta counties for three days as part of the Shenandoah Young Author Celebration, which is part of the Virginia State uh, I'm going to get it wrong. The Virginia State Library Association, I believe. <laughs> um, they sponsored me many years ago, maybe six, seven or eight at this point for this celebration. They have an author come to lots of area Shenandoah Valley schools, typically every year. This is rescheduled from March 2020, of course. <laughs> so I finally get to come back and the events are scaled back a little bit um, because most of them are many hundreds of kids in an auditorium typically. So they're not making that work. Um, but, and then they coordinated with JMU to ask me to come talk to education students also pre-service teachers and maybe current teachers. I'm not sure who all's exactly been invited. I know it's going to be a lovely group and it's part of an award ceremony. And I'm just a little piece of that, but I'm very grateful um, because whenever I get to talk to teachers, I just try to support them to, I have seen that what they're doing in classrooms and it's hard and it's um, important and <laughs> beautiful work. And so I give them um some hands-on activities that they can use with kids about how to get, get a story started. Things that I usually use when I work with um, upper elementary students and some tips on revision. Cause that's a really important thing. Kids often think that you write a story once and you should be finished. So <laughs> I tell them about how authors have to work hard and revise and how that can be fun and how they can work with that. So they're just going to find out about a little bit about how I got started writing some of cool photos of the alligators from my backyard. And I have um, pictures of stories that I've been writing since I was in the third grade. I was actually writing stories about animals that I made up in the third grade. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, we're doing a, a talk and then a book signing. And I'm very excited because I am grateful and enjoy every opportunity to come back to JMU. I just got to participate as a parent for the first time in the tour this spring, last spring. And that's scary, but also very wonderful that he might go there, my son. So, yeah. <laughs> I have wonderful memories of being there. I was trying to find, I just have to add this last little piece for you because I was trying to find proof or some way to confirm that um, 
I believe my husband and I are the only couple to have gotten married on the quad, on the steps of Wilson Hall. I can't find like a process or anything on the website that says you're allowed to get married. I can't find any photos of people who have or anything that says that people do. But we did because my we were young and crazy and they didn't have a process for that yet. So uh, my husband wrote to Dr. Carrier at the time because there was no email system and there was no website and he wrote him a letter. And we found out later that if we had gone through the right channels through like um, catering and student activities or whoever, they would have said no. Um, but Dr. Carrier said yes. And so we, he worked in media loans and he got all the equipment set up and we had our reception in Chandler Hall, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and we got married right on the steps of Wilson Hall. And it was awesome. And I, I think that we were the pioneers and the only to ever get to do that. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything you'd like to plug? A website people could go to to get more information? I'm sure I am consistently branded. I'm gingerclarkbooks.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can always find me on Ginger Clark Books. I try to um, keep things you know updated about sneak peeks of books and schools that I've been in, um, where I'm going. I've been you know, sharing the JMU education <laughs> social media that they've been promoting this event. So that's where you can find me. All right. Well, wonderful. Ginger Clark, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. Make sure to follow us at Instagram and Twitter at JMU Cohen Center. And be on the lookout for more conversations at the Cohen Center. 